0: Welcome to my life to Supplied, applied, episode 279. Agmar Ksi a good Shtyor. We're now in the days of Aserisime Chuva, the ten days beginning from the Rosh Hashanah, Tovshin Pei, and concluding on Yom Kippur, which will be this coming Tuesday night, Wednesday. So we wish each other Agmar Ksimateva and a blessings for our new year where as the Altar Rebbe says in Tanya and Geras based on the Kisfer Rizal, a new air chadosh, new energy enters, unprecedented. Never before and never again will this energy enter. And it enters into our lives, giving us blessings in abundance in all matters. Children, family, life, health, sustenance, parnasa, and all in abundance. This program is dedicated, I'm pleased to dedicate it, to to, uh, two children that were born in the new year. One is my own granddaughter, Rashi Jacobson, born on Dala Tishrei, to Menachem Mendel and Veda Jacobson, my son and his wife, and as well as Boy Gurevich, born to Beryl and Chana Gurevich, on the 5th of Tishrei. Obviously there's no name yet, that will be at the bris. So we dedicate this program to newborn children in the new year, New lives that God decided to send to this world, and begin their mission literally this week in these days that we're going to Yom Kippur. So as always, we begin with something that's timely. The chsed is applied to, to Yom Kippur and Sukkot, because this is the schedule of this year. Yom Kippur will be Wednesday, and next Sunday night will be Sukkot. So this program I'll cover both, and um, and the next program will not be will not be till after Simchas the week of Pasha Noyach actually, so three weeks from tonight. Um, so in that context, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. But before we go even that, because yesterday was the 55th anniversary of the site of the Rebbe Tzachana, the Rebbe's mother, I thought I'd share a few words about that, because last week there was no program. So 55 years in Tav it was Shabbat Shuvah Vov Tishrei. I remember I was seven and a half years old. Um, and I remember being in 770, it was the small 770s still downstairs, and the children would be in the back, there were these bookcases, and we would sit inside of them, and I remember vividly the fabrengen. I don't remember what was said, uh, that's already been published, but I do remember something that you don't really hear about. I'm almost sure, uh, and if I'm, if, 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 I, if I'm wrong, I stand corrected, and that is that the Rebbe, they sang the song before Prozayi's Teshu Yerushalayim and Tovshe in 1968, was applied to the nigan. But there was a song, before it had the words, President Yisraelim used to be sung, it was a very Lebedic and And I believe that was sung then, and the Rebbe stood up, his face was very red. As we all know, the Fabrengan ended earlier, and the Rebbe was already not well. And the Rebbe went straight from his room to the Rebbe's uh, Khan's house and the rest is ready. The details have been documented. As a child, my memories are obviously very fleeting, but I do remember it was a significant day, and we know that out of Vav Tishrei came the birth of many things that the Rebbe always would turn a tragedy and a loss into something positive. The Rebbe began explaining Rashi's. Peter Rashi al began the of his mother, Vav Tishrei, as well as other emphasis, especially on the Rosh of Hanachal and Nida. Had Neida is the three pillars of every home. also Rosh uh, HaTev is Hachin, the charm, the grace, and, um, and many other messages. But I wanted to touch a moment about Rashi. The Rebbe never explained why he started to be a Rashi. Everything has a connection. For example, Teferis Kenim Levi Yitzchak was connected to his father. So the name, Kenim, is also a father, you can say. Um, as far as Rashi connected to his mother... So the Rebbe, of course, emphasized, and this was the landmark, the hallmark, cardinal cornerstone of the entire Rashi, is that in lebosi ella Lapshuta Shamikra, ben chomesh lemikre. And as the Rebbe always emphasizes, who most likely learns with a child, the chomesh Mikra, I'm sure his father learned with him, but a mother, especially, getzachop, is dedicated to her child, and it could very well be the first Rashi that the Rebbe learned was with his mother. But regardless, it emphasizes Rashi is the Benchomosh Lamikin, and Benchomosh Lamikin, the Rebbe being the ben Hamish of his mother, that was the way he's honoring his mother, the chinook that his mother gave him. He said, but that is a possible, but it would be a beautiful connection because the Rebbe took his relationship with his mother and made it into a, an, an innovation, a revolution in understanding Rashi, which is for children. Of course, many lessons in education as well. So that's one point I want to make. It's 55 years, 55 is always a... Uh, is a key, it's like you have the fifty is a number, fifty-five is a number that Rebbe would often talk about. So we have lessons that continue to endure, even though it's so many years later, and especially through the eyes of the Rebbe, as we saw the the COVID, the honor that Rebbe gave his mother, a lesson to each of us in Kibbutz Avaim. and um, as well as the today we have the diaries and the shemis, the manuscripts that the Rebbe Nachane left, that she wrote about her about her about her. About her Son, illustrious son. And altogether, what you get is a picture, a picture of not just a dedication, but one that goes all the way back from the beginning of time, when they all began back in Russia, growing up and the education and the dedication and the commitment that Rebbe had not seen his mother and his father. He never saw again after he left Russia, but that his mother he had not seen since, uh, you can say, at least 1929, and then they reunited in 1947. So you're talking about uh, eighteen years, 1929, 39, yeah, eighteen years at least, maybe longer. They couldn't even come to the Rebbe's wedding; and they celebrated Yekaterinoslav their own simcha, because they couldn't get out. The Rebbe who got married in Warsaw, and uh, they say when the Rebbe first met the Rebbe's and he flew in 1947. It was the only time. Once the Rebbe came to America, he never left except once for a few months. That that spring, Pesach time, and so on, a few months to go pick up his mother that uh, 1947, that when they met for the first time, they embraced, without saying a word, some say 20 minutes, 10 minutes, five, I'm not sure how long, but you could see the connection that defies words in the true mother-son connection. There's a story I, shared, uh, I heard and I shared in Toward a Meaningful Life about a woman, a girl, who said that she's not on speaking terms with her mother. And the Rebbe says, you know what I would do to have just one more conversation with my mother? And here you have her and you're not speaking with her. So there are tremendous lessons, even on basic common sense and respect and honor and appreciating our parents, which is not such an easy mitzvah always that we learn. And above all, the Masidus Nefesh that his mother had in helping her husband write, making the ink, to write all the Rishimus, his uh, notes on the gloss, on Zehar and on Tanya and uh, and, uh, and Chazal, and what, which you have today is a result that, uh, that Rabbi Sachan not only Helped them prepare, help them be able to enable them and empower them to write it. But also, she helped whisk out some of this. A lot of it remained. They say with a lot more pages that we still have not seen. Hopefully, one day we'll find them if they weren't destroyed, God forbid. But she helped also bring them to this part of the world. And the Rebbe would obviously also learn and teach once they started being published here. The Rebbe started explaining every week. Besides Rashi, in honor of his mother, also. In honor of his father, he was actually explaining one of these commentaries or glosses and of his father's comments on Zehra and so on. Geres and Tanya. So what we have here is a picture, as I said, that Rebbe, our Rebbe, seventh generation, shaped by and educated by such beautiful parents. So when we honor Vov Tishrei, we're honoring the Rebbe, we're honoring his relationship with them, we're honoring the contributions they all made, and especially the impact that the Rebbe Tzachana must have had as a mother on her son, which impacted all of us by extension. So this just to, that, to just to, as a tribute to that, a few words about uh, Vav Tishrei. And it also tells us about the importance of the nurturing of every mother. Chana, of course, is connected to Rosh Hashanah. The first Haftela, the first day Hafteira, is about Chana praying for a child and uh, the dedication that Shmuel. She dedicated Shmuel to God because... God opened her womb and gave her a child. You also find Vashem Hashem remembers Soda. So Shoshana is a time of opening up wombs, new birthings. As I said, a new energy enters. So the Rebbe Chanah is connected to Chanah, a birthing, the birthing of the Rebbe, in a different part of the year, which is also connected to creation, Nissan, as we discussed in the last program, the two opinions, when the world was created, whether it was in Tishrei or Nissan. So you have it all interestingly connected. The Vav Tishrei always takes place right in the middle of the Aseris Yamei Tshuven. With that, let's move right into into Yom Kippur, and then we'll go into Sukkot. At the end of the program, we're going to talk the chassidus of of Yom Kippur and Sukkot, the structure and the sequence of the holidays. But here I want to talk about, is number one, Yom Kippur, of course, is the holiest day of the year, and the most obvious reason for that is, not just Exodus of God decreed it, because that's the day that God granted forgiveness to the Jewish people after the building of the golden calf. When? 80 days earlier, Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from Mount Sinai on the 17th of Tammuz, he sees a golden calf after 40 days and 40 nights being on the mountain. He shatters the tablets, goes back up on the mountain, comes back down to Rishchei Dishel, unsuccessful, goes back a third time, and then comes back Yom Kippur, as we shall say Tuesday night, right after Kol Nidre. I have forgiven them as you have requested, as you have spoken. Unbelievable. Only time in history a human being stood up to God and prevailed. And what did he gain? Hope. The birth of hope. That's Jim Kipper. That no matter what happens, there's forgiveness. That doesn't justify or allow us the license, God forbid, to do anything wrong. But we know as flawed human beings, we may and we will do something wrong. We have the ability to correct, repair, to reconcile. If you think about it, it's one of the greatest, maybe the greatest gift in life. That we're not just damaged goods. That the arrow only goes one direction, the direction of time, past, present, and future. That we can actually go into the past and correct it. Both things we did to others and things between ourselves and God. That's Yom Kippur. That's what it's called. Yom HaKippur, the Day of Atonement. There are many, many of, of obvious lessons in, in regard to Chassidus supply. The most obvious one is that there's no such thing as impossible. That there's no such thing as lost. There's no such thing as I'm damaged, too late for me. Yom Kippur teaches absolutely not. And Moshe prevailed and demonstrated that. So number one, it gives us the ability to start anew. Rosh Hashanah is renewal. But Yom Kippur seals. And that's when he actually comes back with the second tablet. Yom Chassonos is called a marriage the conclusion, because he ultimately gained that, regaining the love that was betrayed and violated. That's Yom Kippur, and that can be applied in our personal lives in so many different ways. But since we're talking about Yom Kippur, and we've talked about it in the past, and I'll make some references shortly to previous programs that have discussed this, and here's a good time to mention we have an entire website called HasidusApply.com where you have the resources of all, this, all these programs, including all past archives, 278 now, plus a forum where you can submit any question completely anonymously and confidentially, plus all the essays that have been written for five years of your contributions and people's contributions, essays on applying to real to contemporary life, And many other resources you can find there, all under the name chassidahsupply.com. So there, there are cross-references where I speak about this, I've spoken about this previous years, obviously, but Priyam Kippur and Sukkis. So let me just give you the cross-references. Episodes 36, 84, 134, 181, and 182, and 229. Regarding Vav Tishrei, I spoke about Vav Tishrei in episode 181. So whatever I say here is always meant to complement and not repeat, but complement that which already was, which was already spoken. If you want more, please go there. It's all time-stamped in the YouTube version, desktop and laptop version. You can find the exact plot and go straight to the topic you're looking for. Okay. So regard to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur has many themes. We've spoken in the past about the five Tfilis, the five prayers, which is unique to Yom Kippur, the five levels of the soul. Of course, I have a lot of material as well in the book, 60 Days, A Spiritual Guide to the High Holidays. There's an entire Yom Kippur section, plus Yom Kippur prayers. And several of these themes we've discussed. What I'm going to discuss tonight is regarding a few questions that came in that are Yom Kippur related. Let's start with the first one. What is the meaning of Kol Nidre? Please, can you elaborate this Sunday the meaning of Kol Nidre based on and provide sources for the reader to look up? I know it's late also, but since you can still make up Tashla, can you explain the concept based on Looking forward to this Sunday. Okay. So I don't believe, or maybe I have spoken about Kol Nidre, but so be it. What's Kol Nidre? This awesome day begins with a haunting melody sung in all shuls with Kol Nidre three times. That all vows, and we go through a whole list of different names for the vows, are annulled, are absolved, and again, all the different expressions. Who focuses on vows? What, what is the significance of vows? That's how you start Yom Kippur. There are many other things we can talk about. Salach the comes afterwards. That seems like a very good beginning. God has forgiven us. And then we talk about forgiveness and how to forgive. What is the vows? Now, we also make, of course, atoros N'Dorim Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, but Yom Kippur, it's with a full prominence. So what is Kol Nidre? So let me give you sources. Chsidus, I found one place discussed in this relatively in detail. That's in the Tzemach Tzedek. Eira tera Matis. Matis, of course, is the, is the Pasha that talks about Pashas in the Dorim, par- this chapter on vows and annulment of vows. So in Pasha in Mates, the, the, the Tzemach Tzedek, pages 1,288 and 89. 1,288, 1,289 is where the Tzamaq Tzadik speaks about it, and I find several different interpretations, explanations of it, and Kol Nidre. He brings from Halochet, the Tur, the Minig Simen Tov Reshutas, Minig HaKadmenim, the custom from, the, from uh, days past, is to say Kol Nidre, the Yom Kippur, that we absolve our vows. And he goes on to explain the significance of Apik and Apik Several different ways that he explains it. So let me share those thoughts, or at least a few of them. He says, Nadorim come from Bina, and Yom Kippur is the net level of Bina. But then he asks, that's another comes from Bina, because Bina has the power to bind ourselves, that we bind ourselves with a vow. When a person says a vow, I will not do certain thing. Takes a vow. So he says, but annulment of vows have to come from a higher level. So he says, it comes from Chokhmah. And then he goes on and explains it comes even from Rotzin and from Kesser and from the highest levels. And what is of now? A vow is when a human being takes upon himself a commitment. Whatever type of commitment. So it's a commitment now that we're bound to that commitment. Can we free ourselves from these commitments? We'll soon discuss why we want to free ourselves. So once you're committed, you're committed. However, on Yom Kippur, we can invoke a higher power that allows us to untie. Because Nedar is also from being tied and committed to something. So we untie it. That comes from Chachma or from Kesar or from Ratz. And it's similar to the concept of tshuva. What is tshuva? A person may have done a mistake, a transgression, and then they have the power to go deeper to the Bal HaRatzin, as Chassidus says. We violated God's will. So how can we correct that? Because we go to the one who chose that will and we ask him to forgive us. In other words, forgiveness can never come from the same place where the mistake happened. You have to go deeper. Moshe Rabbeinu was on the mountain. He went deeper he reads deeper into the divine to elicit the 13 attributes of compassion that ultimately would forgive them. So to forgive someone for who's hurt you, you can't just go back as if everything's regular, go back to square one. No, you've hurt me. You've violated something. So you have to dig deeper to find a deeper strength and a deeper power. That What does it do? It also transforms, like he explains, it transforms darkness to light. So therefore the concept of forgiveness is very much linked to the concept of tshuva, and the con- I'm sorry, not- I'm- I should correct myself. The concept of vows and annulment of vows is very much connected to the tshuva on sins and also on forgiveness. Because what's forgiveness? You hurt somebody. So you can't just say, okay, forgive me. You have to dig deeper to be able to elicit and to be worthy of the trust that was once betrayed. So all of it is connected to the theme of Yom Kippur. So why do we begin this way? Because when you go going to Yom Kippur and you want to start a clean slate, the first thing you have to do is release yourself from previous commitments. So that's why it begins with Kol Nidre, all my vows. And vow here is not just vows we say in speech. Everything we've done, everything we've committed to, the things that bind us, our trappings, our inhibitions, our previous routines and habits, our fears, All is under the word Kol Nidre and we want to free ourselves because how are you going to bring in a new energy? A new sanctity. Go into the Holy of Holies of Yom Kippur. Reach the highest levels, the deepest levels of the soul if you're bringing the old baggage. So Kol Nidre is freeing yourself from that baggage so you can now be free to introduce new power. So Kol Nidre represents all of that also represents the transformation of the negative into the positive as he explains in that minor. Okay. As far as Tashlich goes, I see one explanation of Tashlich. I'd rather not go into that. It's another Let's leave that question for another time, maybe next year before Rosh Hashanah. Um, yeah. The next question. Tikkunim for Avedis. What is the view of Chabad Chassidus on Tikkunim for Avedis? Let's translate. Repair, correction of sins, of transgressions. of mistakes we've made, iniquities. So, first of all, even though Chabad Chassidus introduces and illuminates a new dimension in Teda, it doesn't change Teda. And it doesn't even add to the basics of Teda. So to say Chabad Chassidus, what is Chabad Chassidus' view? Or uh, the view of Chabad Chassidus on Tikkun first of all, it's the same view as every halacha. Whatever halacha says is the kunim. That what's an Aveda? Aveda is that person comes in this world. We have free will. We have an animal soul, and divine soul. And Aveda means displacement. we moved away. And we're not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. So you could think, that's it. You did it. It's over with. So no, we have the ability to do tshuva, to repair. That's the whole essence of says made tshuva these days. Rosh Hashanah and especially Yom Kippur. Tshuva l'akel. It's a tshuva. It's a day of tshuva. Shuva means return, return back to the way it was meant to be in a healthy way. Think of someone who is healthy, then absorb toxins. So you could say, "Okay, too late." No, it's not even too late. You can cleanse, you can repair, you can improve. So that's the basic concept in Olavtail. You could ask, "What does Chiz Chabad contribute? How does it add to that?" So two points I would make. Number 1 that the emphasis is less on the dirt and the toxin but more on the light. Because, why are you correcting? There's a whole approach that you can take is guilt, negativity, punitiveness, punishment, and so on. Or you can take another approach, which is a much more positive approach. Your neshama is so pure and it's been defiled or it's been locked or trapped and concealed. So, the tikkun is to clear away the dust so your neshama can shine again. That's his Chabad approach. That doesn't mean, however, that you can, you're not supposed to have remorse and that you're not supposed to go into the detail, and you have to, when you ask forgiveness, you have to know what, what you did wrong. We can't just take the high road and ignore the past. But the emphasis is more on Reh and on the greatness of God and the greatness of the soul, rather than the lowliness of the person. That's one key difference. The se- second thing is, and it's probably dependent on the first, is that it's all done with joy. So even though Rosh Hashanim Kippur are days of awe, the gilu berada, Even the joy is also done with trembling. You stand before a king, you stand with respect. You don't make somersaults, you don't dance. That's Sukkot, which we'll get to shortly. Yom Kippur is a day of awe, like Rosh Hashanah. But it's not an awe that's causing us to be frightened. It's an awe that's causing us to be uplifted and stand with respect as we are accountable for who we are and what we've done. So when you take that approach, it's far less fear-driven and guilt-driven as so many people experience and think they have to experience in Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. So those are the two key things I would say. There's a lot more to be said on this because remember, an Aved at the end of the day is a severing. A mitzvah is a bonding, connecting. Tzafzah ve you connect. So let's say your body, everything is connected well. It's humming along very smoothly and healthily. If something, there's something that's severed or something that breaks, then you need to repair it. And that is also part of a relationship with the divine. That would be the key points I'd make. Now one more thing is about forgiveness. Since this is a special Yom Kippur edition, let's talk about forgiveness. So I have three questions that came in on this. I'll try to address them. And then we shall talk as well about Sukkos. Maybe I'll save that for the chassiz. Let's see. let's see how it goes. Forgiveness. Preparation for the high holidays. Shalom Rabbi Jacobson. I know that if a Jew doesn't forgive his fellow friend, Hashem doesn't forgive him. But that does apply, but that but does that apply also to myself? Do I have to forgive myself? So in Halachi, you're not going to find that expression, forgiving yourself, but in you will. Like the Rafridi Karebbe said, just as you have to know your Husseinus, you have to also know your myelas. Which means you have to also know that you have potential. And um, though the language, I've not seen it explicitly, you have to forgive yourself, but to blame yourself and to become demoralized in the process is also something that's not healthy. So in a way, yes, there's an element of forgiving oneself and completing the circle of mechila, which comes from the word circle. Uh, I've spoken about this in previous years, um, and I'll give you the episodes. Episodes about, this is in general about Forgiveness. 16, 84, 181, 189. Essays, there was an essay about it in, in episode 253. And forgiveness from the deceased, people who are not here anymore and you want to have forgiveness from them, that you'll find in episodes 90, 120, and 123. So I definitely spoke about forgiving yourself because to speak a little on a deeper level, many of us, when we do something, are guilt. It's so overwhelming that it doesn't allow you, like he says in Tiny, demoralizes you and doesn't allow you to grow. So you can gain forgiveness from somebody else, and they say, I forgive you for what you did, but sometimes you beat yourself up too much. And beating yourself up, the Friedrich Kareb is expression I mentioned by Hasan's he also says, You're not supposed to speak lush and on yourself. That means you have to also have a positive attitude. That doesn't mean we're not accountable. But not in a way that you don't know how to forgive yourself. And many of us do blame ourselves for things that happened. And that blame does not necessarily motivate us to grow. So there is that element of self-forgiving. Another question regarding forgiveness. Hello Rabbi Jacobson. Firstly, thank you for all your wisdom and knowledge you share with us all in a most loving and caring way. Your lessons and deep thoughts have and continue to impact my life, Baruch Hashem. My My question, both personal and general, has been pressing on me for a while, and since, it still does not, and, st- and since it still does on occasions, I've decided to gain your clarity on, on it and take action if need be. In general, what's the halachic of, or Torah appropriate thing to do regarding someone that hurts you? Do you have to let them know how much they hurt you, or as long as you forgive them, it is not necessary. Is there a point, chiyuv, an obligation in letting them know? If there are still times that it hurts, does it mean that I don't, didn't forgive fully? In one instance, there's much residual consequences and pain from their faulty advice, and there may be things that can they can do to correct their guidance. Although I don't expect it, I don't assume, assume that they know how badly they hurt me. On one hand, I am the one to quote unquote teach them a lesson and let them know what they claim to be obli- let them know what they claim to be oblivious to my pain and to tell them what I feel they should do. I should rephrase that, that's a question. On one hand, am I the one to teach them a lesson and let them know what they claim to be oblivious to my pain and tell them what what I feel they should do? Or do I approach them, they may get, or if I do approach them, they may get offended and deny and do not want to own up. I want to add a twist to this question. In this particular instance, the person that hurt me was and is a life coach, as well as a public face and speaker. She advised me to sever a close family relationship of which I'm still dealing with its painful repercussions. The advice was seriously flawed. And although the life, the life coach, admitted this flaw, admitted to this flaw, and realized she was biased, she never apologized, assumed accountability, or tried to make good on it. At the time of the incident, I confronted her a couple of times, and she brushed off the conversations and topic. A year and a half passed since then. I know of other cases where clients were hurt and complained that her advice was flawed and caused a lot of pain. I appreciate the value, charm, and skill she brings with her to the world, but the incongruence of her talks and behavior are bothersome. It also makes listening to many speakers or authority challenging. Being that she's a practicing life coach, it compels me to want to approach her again and make her aware of the pain she's causing. The fact that she didn't receive it once makes me unsure if she will receive it again. On a personal level... I was Baruch Hashem able to forgive her and see her as a messenger from Hashem for my growth. I obviously no longer coach with her, but our paths do cross and our interactions are strained and awkward. I would still like to have a mutually pleasant Kesher connection with her. Thank you so much for taking the time to read this and give me guidance and clarity. Looking forward to your response. Okay, it's a very good question. What we have in Halacha and Jewish law, the laws before Yom Kippur, is that we're obligated to ask for forgiveness more than once, if we've hurt somebody. The person who was hurt is obligated to give to grant forgiveness. And there's the aloha's talk about the details, and this I did discuss in previous episodes. I'm not going to go into all those details. But here you're interesting, raising an interesting question. What happens if that person has not come to ask? Either they're oblivious or they're not oblivious. Is it your responsibility to let them know? Because the aloha, the law that I just described, is people asking and granting. What happens if someone who should be asking is not asking. Is it your job? So I've not seen this explicitly and maybe there is material on this in and, and I ask anyone to share if they do know something. But I'll just use based on the principles of Torah methodology. It's case by case. There is the concept of which means the person hurts you and they don't realize that they hurt you that you have to make them aware they shall at least know. But I don't know if this is a blanket statement across the board. Because what happens if they don't listen to you? What happens if you get hurt in the process? What happens if they just play lip service and they're not coming to you on their initiative? So I would say it's case by case, meaning depending how close you are to that person, how they'll react, will they indeed respond? Maybe the way to do it is to get a third party involved. So I don't know if I could just say blanket across the board that uh, that, that the way you asked it was, You have to let them know how much they hurt you. Or just forgiving them is enough. It's a case by case. Now, you could argue that forgiveness is enough. You've forgiven them. so. But sometimes they may need to have the contrition. They may need to feel and understand for their own growth. Is it your job? Based on the halacha of forgiveness, which is when you don't forgive because a person may not yet really be, have broken their hearts and been humbled, means that you do have some responsibility to make them aware. You could derive from that where a person can choose to not forgive for a reason because the person's not yet fully contrite, fully fully, uh, remorseful. So based on that, you could say that maybe you should be making them aware. But again, I still think it's case by case. And regarding that, sometimes forgiveness may be enough if you can free yourself with the forgiving. Maybe they don't have to know. But I don't know if there's a black and white statement on that because sometimes they need to know because they may even be doing it to others or they may have blind spots, etc., etc., Now, as far as that it hurts, does it mean I didn't forgive fully? I don't know if that's correct always. It could still be hurting because there was a lot of pain caused. And yet you free yourself by forgiving. With time, God helps that you actually can free yourself and not experience the pain any longer. Okay. Now, as far as the situation you describe, look, people are human beings. And yes, even life coaches and rabbis and teachers and mentors can make mistakes if it's and you have to choose it. you have to decide if you're someone you can't trust any longer or you realize they're not for you they're not for you now if they do hurt you i think it's worthwhile talking to them i think you do it in a non-confrontational way because confrontation always creates defensive mechanisms in a very professional way in a very calm way and it could be that the person will be able to hear and worst case scenario they can't hear it, so at least you tried that would be my advice regarding the coach that you're describing now, some people have blind spots and they're not capable of seeing. They're, 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 they have their negus, meaning their biases and prejudices. That, again, is case by case. Okay, I think I addressed the topic and complimenting what I've already talked about in previous years. The next one. Let's say I, give, I gave someone a not nice comment and later I'll, I tell him I'm sorry and ask for forgiveness. He answers me that he can't forgive me because... He was suffering from verbal abuse for years, from many people, giving him not nice comments, and no one giving him not, and, and no one giving him nice comments and this com- comment became part of it all. Do I need to try to appease him? I just gave him one comment that a normal person would get over in a day or less, only because of his situation, he is so hurt and ha- And how responsible am I for all this? Look, you're not responsible we're never responsible for other problems, but a human being who's been hurt by many. We obviously are more responsible to be more sensitive. If you know a person has been hurt and is wounded, it's like hitting someone in a place in their body where they're already very vulnerable. So yes, that is our responsibility. And it is our responsibility to appease. doesn't matter, you could say one second, I didn't do all that hurt. I understand, that person may be blaming you for things that others said to that, to that person. So fine, we need to make that distinction. That person needs to know it. But you still need to correct amend your relationship with the person that you've hurt even if there's other people who've hurt him and yes we need to be extra sensitive so you don't have to take responsibility for everybody but at least for your part and especially now being aware that this person was hurt by others that makes them extra sensitive it would be like someone you push down the steps who's been pushed down by many god forbid and they've broken a leg i'm only using it as an example so obviously you have to do whatever it takes. That's the halacha I mentioned, the law. You need to ask for forgiveness for someone you've hurt, regardless of anything else that happened before or after. Okay, next question. One more, one, fourth one. Reflecting on the past year, why do I find it harder to forgive myself than it is to forgive others? I guess it's very similar to the first one I read. Maybe it's connected. Rabbi, thank you for all the time and effort you devote to spreading and imparting Torah knowledge on Chassidus. Why do I find it harder to forgive myself than it is to forgive others? I reflect on the past year and see too many times where I missed the mark, where I overlooked an opportunity to live up to the expectations Hashem has for me. My my shortcomings bring me feelings of shame and guilt. While I can easily overlook, and in most cases not even recognize, other people's flaws, when it comes to myself, I cannot. Thank you. Ksiva v'chsimatev. Okay. The simple reason why it's easier to... um, Forgive others and forgive yourself is because, number one, our own insecurities come into play. Like you say, it's easier to not, to, to it's easier, like it says, <laughs> a person sees all flaws except their own. So that, in addition to insecurity, can also contribute to why it's harder to forgive ourselves. That would be the obvious reason. But that also explains the importance for forgiving yourself, because if you don't forgive yourself, the guilt, as I mentioned, will demoralize you. And that can be helpful. So there's one thing, asking for forgiveness of others. There's also asking for forgiveness of yourself. And Let me put it in maybe other terms. Who are you asking forgiveness of as when you're asking of yourself? You're asking forgiveness of your neshama of your pure part, of your inner child, if you wish. Because all of us have a very pure place, as we say every day, the soul you've given me is very pure. So this, conceptually, you can ask forgiveness of that purity. Why did I defile you? Why did I neglect you? Why did I neglect you as, a, as my inner child and not nurture you? Why did I allow myself to be distracted? So just as we do that, when we talk to our own children who may, we may have abandoned, God forbid, or in any way hurt, or anybody else we've hurt, we could also say it to ourselves, we've hurt a part of ourselves. By not living up to God, the divine mission and calling for which we were created, we've hurt ourselves. So you can ask forgiveness. The more aware part of you, the more conscious, can ask forgiveness of the part that was hurt and say, you know what, I realize I've hurt me. I've hurt that inner, deeper part of myself. So all that is harder in many ways than asking from another. Another is outside of you. It doesn't have all the complexities. It's still not easy. But you could see it as being uh, easier than asking forgiveness of yourself. Now, of course, you could ask the question, when a person is subjective, isn't it easier to, to justify your own behavior and forgive yourself than forgiving others? Will you become more critical? Yes, there's a truth to that as well. But there's also a truth the other way around. So there's not a contradiction. It's two separate angles and aspects to this topic. Okay, so we forgive, we, discovered that we covered the topic of forgiveness relatively in more detail, questions that came in. And I refer you again to the episodes that I read earlier that I've discussed the topic earlier. And of course, our forgiveness of each other is leading us to also be forgiven, as I said before, to repair and improve and refine our relationship with God. At the end of the day, forgiveness is the improving of relationships. It's accountability. Trust is not built on perfection, it's built on accountability. So with that, we've covered, I believe, to some extent, Yom Kippur material. And now let's go to some other questions, unrelated to Yom Kippur directly at least. As far as sukkahs goes, as I said, I'll speak about the Chassidist question, but let me say this just briefly, and we'll elaborate soon a little more. The sequence is fascinating, remarkable sequence. It reflects the cycles of life, the rhythms of life. And I've talked about this over the past months, that when you talk about the Jews leaving Mitzrayim, they, they, they free themselves from all constraints and limitations. They free them, Mitzrayim v'Gvulim, from all limits and constraints. 49, 50 days later, they receive the mandate from God, the blueprint, the Torah. Okay, now they're worthy. 40 days later, they build a golden calf and they make a big mistake, a big sin, a false God. Instead of following the mandate and living up to what God wants, they built the golden calf. Then comes the repair. So you have all the cycles of life here. The freedom we experience, the mandate we receive, the mistakes we make, then the repair. The repair takes 80 days including the month of El, all the way to Yom Kippur. Including Rosh Hashanah. The repair of our mistakes, the accountability. But what happens after that? We burst out in song and celebration. Because now that we have not just received the mandate, not just experienced freedom and received the mandate, we've also achieved a level of hope and transformation even of the negative, then you have the full picture, and no matter what happens in your life. You have both the blessings and you also have the ability to correct things that are not a blessing. So what do you do? You start dancing. So Sukkot is man Chasenu, Time of rejoicing. And it it accelerates until shemineh Saras and then simchasteinu, the highest level of singing and dancing. For what? For the Torah that we received, the second tablets that we received on Yom Kippur. So we'll talk about this a little more shortly. Let's go now to another Question. And that is the question of why is the chassidus of the Rebbe Marash and the Tzemach Tzedek for the most part ignored? Okay, let me elaborate. You're most likely referring to what we learn in yeshiva and what people mostly learn. So people learn Tanya, Tere, er Eilukutu Tere from the Alter Rebbe. Middle Rebbe, not much is learned. Some people learn. Some people not learn. Today we have Ad Muram Tsoi. Comes to the Tzema Chedek, Eira and the Rishimah Yaleir and all the other Sefer Sefer is not mostly learned by most people, correct. Terech Mitzusecha is from the Samach Chedek. Rebbe Marash as well. Rebbe Rashab, you find yeshiva a lot more studying in Rebbe Rashab, whether it's the sheikhim of Samach Vov and or the individual Mamoream through the years, Eter and Anat and so on, or some. You see more learning on the Friedrich Rebbe as well, and the Rebbe as well. So, firstly, let me just say this. This is not indic- indicative of priority. This is indicative of the fact that you have limited time on a very basic level, and we should be learning all of it. It's seven Rabbeim. And today we have from each of them a lot more than we had 30, 40, 50 years ago. So there's no justification in saying why. I'm, I'm going to give you an explanation why not to learn it. As a matter of fact, in the late yuds, Yud Zion, Tazayin, Yud Zion, the Rebbe said to learn the Rebbe Marash's Ma'am, Aram, Yeshiva. And they did. They were beginning to be published then. The second point is you have to remember what was available. Throughout the generations, Tanya, Tere, Eil, Kut, were available. Samach Vov was available. Even I.M. Bez, part of it was available. Most of it was not. So, availability dictated sometimes what would be learned in yeshivas and by people in Shiurim. The Mittler Rebbe did publish him, but they're very complicated and dense, and not everybody learned. Imrebine, Teres the Sidrim Dach, Bure Azeyar, Chaim. But some did learn, especially the Avedidik Svarim, Shari Eira. I'm going on, Shari Tshuva, Shara Amunah, Shari Yichud, and on and on. But the Samach Tzedek was printed really a lot later. People did not have the Samach Tzedek's writings until the Rebbe started printing it in the Chofs. The Rebbe Marash, the same thing. So it could be that being that those were printed last, until this day, the Rebbe Marash was the last one really printed all the years, so that way people didn't have it, that would be an explanation. But it's not a justification, it's just explaining the technicality of it. Bottom line is one more point I want to make. When I started working in Sefer Lekutim, Tov which was gathering from the Tzemach Tzedek's and making it into a, like an encyclopedia, we didn't even know what Eid was. We knew of this Svanim, some people looked at it, when we opened it, it was like a treasure that opened up. And you realize how the Tzemach is so vital in the development of Chassidus. So why it's not learned? Because people are not even aware of that. And it's also a lot, is chap is pages and pages, even though today we look at the Maimori Admura the of the Alta Rebbe, the Maimori of the Mittler Rebbe, we also see an abundance. I haven't compared the amounts, but Samak Sadek, they say, wrote uh, there was you know, 20,000 Boygan or whatever the number is. So all these things combined, but the bottom line is that today we have it all. And as the Rebbe said, we have everything on a platter. The Mittler Rebbe bemoaned the fact that even though Anash, find more precious a manuscript, a rare manuscript, than a published work. Nevertheless, we're going to publish. So the abundance of it today is being taken for granted, and it's not correct. Each of us should try to take upon this new year to learn some more chassidus. Now we know the Rebbe once said that that to understand chassidus, well, you need the Rebbe Rashab. So the Rebbe was asked by one of the secretaries, what about the Rebbe's memoir? The Rebbe said that's misadiskashus. But it's our connection. But the truth is, all the rabbim is one big picture. It's like someone saying, "I'm only going to learn reshenim and adah I'm only the Mishnah and not the Gemara." It's a process. The Alta Rebbe started this Chabad, founded it based on the Balshtev of the Magid. The Mittler Rebbe, the Samaritzer Rebbe, Marash, the Rebbe Rashab, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, all developed these themes and these, these themes and these ideas. So the truth is, we have to learn as much as we can. Now, how do you make priority? It's begin with your heart desires. Maybe you want to start a new sefer. Some people I see are learning been lately. Some people are learning by the year. tofresh pei is a hundred years. Tafshin pei, the year of the stalke. the beginning of it is going to be the most of it is the Rebbe my mamodim. Then after Beis Nissen starts, the is Rebbe's mamodim. So there's many ways, and I can't really call chad v'chad according to their way. Everybody has their preferences. I teach every day a kashir and ayin beys. Ayin beys is definitely, of course, a magnum opus. But every one of the rabbeim adds and contributes. So really, any type of lack of focus on something is not due to Sholom that it's less important chassidus, but it's simply either due to the factors that I mentioned was why it may be less focused on. But that has to be corrected by each of us. Okay, next question. What is the Rebbe's position on the state of Israel's existence? How is it different from the positions? How is it different from the positions of other Jewish leaders? Okay. So firstly, let me refer you to episodes two twenty five and two twenty seven, where I spoke about Zionism. The Rebbe in contrast with the Rebbe Rashab. If there's a difference or no difference. Also, episodes eighty, episodes eighty nine, ninety, and two sixty three and two sixty four. Briefly. It's a bigger topic, but briefly, let me begin. And this is vital because people don't seem to understand what it's about. The Rebbe has a famous letter to Shazar. Well, maybe it's not so famous, but it's those that know it. For them, it's famous. Shazar was the president of Israel, and Shazar came to see the Rebbe, he considered himself a chosid, and he writes to the Rebbe. The Rebbe is writing to me, a nosi of Eretz Yisrael, president of Isra- the land of Israel, not Medina'sis or the state of Israel. When I swore, Rosh Hashanah writes to the Rebbe, I gave an oath to the state. So why are you depriving me from being a chosid? Because my oath, my commitment, my loyalty is to the state. So the Rebbe writes interestingly, briefly, number one, you're far older than I am, and your chosid, being a chosid is not dependent on me. I cannot deprive you from being a chosid. And number two, on the contrary, when I wrote Eretz Yisrael, I broadened the relationship, expanded it. Medinah, Israel began in 1948, and Eretz Israel goes back thousands of years. In other words, is the land of Israel ours because the Balfour Declaration, because the UN's determined the resolution on the partition in 1948, and it was declared a state, or is it because it's an Eretz that the Abrahster gave us, the land, the Promised Land that God gave us, that the Jews marched to, that lived in for so long, and will always return to, in the promises given to us? And now we see how many Jews have moved there today to the extent that it's the largest, uh, centru- the largest one lo- location of Jewish people today. So, what is that all that? That's something that happened in 1948. So, that's the first thing you have to remember that it's as slow as a holy land, a promised land given to us by God. What's the attitude to Zionism? So, let's talk Zionism. Zionism is a concept of Zion, Shuvah Zion, So, the Zion. It's about returning to the, Zion, the real Zion. Zionism was not born in the 19th century or the 20th century. However, there is a the concept of secular Zionism, or you call it, call it social Zionism, social Zionism, or agrarian Zionism, there's spiritual Zionism, there's a whole bunch of variations. I once wrote about this, a whole article. You can find it on MeaningfulLife.com. Did that displace, God forbid, original Zionism? The idea that Zion, Zion, means a sign a country a land that god chose obviously not so the attitude is not less it's an even more connection the problem is that people only associate with the secular version that happened in 1948 and to the zionist movement that's a limitation that's like suggesting israel does is not here prior to that it's not correct because if you dependent on the countries of the world including the un to give us Israel, then they can say, you know what? Time is up, now we decide we're taking it from you and we're giving it to elsewhere. As Rashi says, the first Rashi, people, the nations are going to say, you're thieves, you stole our land. So they says, no, it's not your land, it's my land. That's where the whole tale begins with Beresh, as Rashi explains. It's my land that I chose to take it from this and give it to them. So the connection to Israel is far deeper when you go with a tater approach. Those that can try to eliminate the Taita approach, God forbid, and only the secular approach is a very thing weak to stand on. Now, how about what's the attitude to now that the state has been established? So it doesn't necessarily have halachic power. It's not a tater state. Just like you need a community council. In any community, just like you need armies or social services in France or in England or in the United States, there's Jews living in Israel. So in 1948, you can say what was established was essentially like a community council. I don't mean to demean it. I don't mean it in a negative way. I'm just trying to explain what it means. And therefore, those services are vital. First of all, utilities, social services, needing an army to protect. The army is holy and sacred. The question is, do you give it any Torah merit? And here there were different of opinions. There were those that said yes. Chabad approaches no. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value and credibility, and doesn't mean we shouldn't support it, because at the end of the day, it's serving Jewish people. So just like you go to a doctor, the doctor even the doctor may not be observant, but he's serving you, he's healing you. We don't just say, I only go to a doctor that's a Yerushalmi. So therefore, there's this support of it, but you have to know, what are we supporting? Not a Torah entity. That will be where Mashiach comes. It's an entity that's necessary for the the welfare of the Jewish people there, just like we would support anywhere. The holiness of the land is a second issue. That's not the holiness of the government or the holiness of of the social services. So there's two different things we need to talk about. When the Rebbe talks, for example, about returning land for peace, he says explicitly, he's not just talking about the holiness of it. That's a separate discussion. That's also valuable. But even without that, there's the concept that Halacha says that if you have enemies on your border, you have to protect yourself and even be because you have to mobilize. Even if they're coming to discuss with you only commerce, basic commerce and trade. Because there's enemies that are sworn enemies that have declared war on you. So there's a simple, and that halacha applies in South Africa, in uh, New York, Crown Heights, in France, because there's a danger involved. In addition, there's the holiness of the land. So the Rebbe's approach basically is, we do not reject and do not support the government. We We don't reject it like some go to extremes against the entire concept. There's a fact on the ground. Israel exists. As a, I'm talking now the government of Israel exists and as such has to be supported. You pay taxes, go to the army and you try to influence them as much as possible to align it to the Tater approach. But to give a Tater value that this is like a schalter the Gula like some say, the beginning of the redemption the Rebbe says absolutely not. That's the balance, that's the, the, the I guess the, I don't call threading a needle but the balance of both things that there's a support where some don't support it at all. Others say it's a shal to the gul, and give it divine attribution and divine, and divine holiness. And you could say it's a divine providence, but it doesn't have yet that Mashiach that will ultimately really bring all the Jews back to Israel and build the Beis and then you'll have what we call the Geulah. Today we say, Mepnei chateinu galinu martzenu, even those in Israel will say, because of our sins we were exiled, but they're living there. Because you can live there and still be an exile. There's no third Beis Amikdash, there's no base Amikdash, you can't bring the offerings. There are a lot of limitations, even though the land is, remains holy forever and ever. So I hope that gives some type of context and clarity on this topic. Obviously, I'm sure there'll be questions, and we'll do some follow-up if need be. Good. Next question. This question is like completely from another angle. I will add one thing about it, because the question asked what was the Rebbe's position on the state of Israel's existence? How is it different to similar, or similar to the positions of Agudis Yisrael, Satmer Mizrahi Rav J.B. Soloveitchik? I answered generally. I didn't go into the details. Maybe we'll do that in the next program. So just wanted to make sure I cover that. Next question, which is a completely different field. Labavacher Havara, expression. It seems that there's a difference in the, the pronunciation of Hebrew words between old Siddim and younger Chassidim. Including the Rebbe, and including the, someone like yourself. Let me read. I didn't read it the right nigan. I'm sorry. Between older chassidim and younger chassidim, older chassidim, including the Rebbe and also people like yourself, and obviously not comparing to the Rebbe, it just means have a chelam, or as younger chassidim, perhaps not many, but not all will have a chelam, chelam or chelam. Okay. Older Chassidim will say Chirik, whereas younger Chassidim will have a, a, a Chirik. Chirik. and Chirik. It seems that the old Havar is disappearing. Do you observe the same? How and why did it become that way? Yes, listen, pronunciations change all the time. I see how Israelis, for example, pronounce Hebrew words, how they say Rebbe or Mashiach, and how we say it in America. Uh, I think accents make a difference. Other languages, people who speak English and say Hebrew or Yiddish words, takes the, that affects the pronunciation. I don't know if it's expression of uh, I don't know. I don't think it's a concept of older chassidim or younger chassidim. Uh, you know, some people simply have developed like you know we say Zedi uh, or Zede, Babi or Babe. So the older I would say Babe, but, but many will say Babi. And other examples as you described, some say Rebbe, Rebbe. Rabbi. So I don't know if there's anything to be read into it. Obviously, closest is when we hear the Rebbe himself say these words and the Friedrich Rebbe and others perform how they pronounce, and we have different uh, examples for that. However, I think it's a lot affected by the different language, the dialects, and the, and the intonations and the accents based on different countries. You go to the same words said in France, in Russia, in Israel, and America will be said differently. That's how I would attribute. And the younger generation, especially if you're talking Americans, are very Englishized. A lot of words don't have the original Yiddish uh, intonation. It's more of an English version of it. That's how I would explain it. I don't know if there's anything deeper than that. The key thing is that we should maintain these words and not forget them and try to uh, pronounce them, of course, correctly and accurately. Next question. One second. Is it appropriate to accept quote-unquote outside help from those who are chagas, chassidim, or non-chassidim in combating mushikhism as a movement? <laughs> okay, so first of all, before we go into help or not help, who says you have to combat m'shichism? Are we talking about something that's halachically permitted or not? If it's not permitted halachically, why do you have to go outside people to help you? What is this, a political fight? Then it's halacha. Go to Rabbonim and try to get clarity and do what has to be done as Tata mandates. If it is halachically acceptable, why are you combating it? You may not believe in that approach. You don't accept that approach. So I've addressed this topic in episodes 46, 249, 264, 265. So to make an assumption, we have to combat, I don't know, as a mishchism, as a movement. Second of all, to start employing people Whatever the Rebbe didn't like going to people, but you're going to create machlekas by going to others, whether it's Balabatim or Chagas or Natchizim. Is that an approach to take? And in general, as I said, what is this combat battle? I read the question because it came in. It's, I'm sure it's a sincere question, but I think it's based on some on some in, 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 in incorrect assumptions. I just want to set the record straight in case others have a similar approach. So we're Tater people. You do things a Tater way, and that's how you answer these questions. In general, combating is not a Tater way. Especially if it's something who says you're, you should be combating it. Combating it. And secondly, going to get other people to employ them into, with, for some type of fight is generally not a Tater approach. Now, if you're talking about joining with others to fight anti Semitism, you want to fight pure racism or things that you know are absolutely inappropriate, fine. You have to also wonder what your priorities are. Okay. Now, we'll do a follow up, we'll do a question, and then we'll do the essays. Okay, well, we're getting through here, quite a lot of material. What's one follow-up, this interesting follow-up? Two weeks ago, in episode 278, we spoke about ear piercing. And I read from a letter from the Rebbe, when in fact, I was made aware that this letter has a correction. In the letter we talked about, the Rebbe was explaining the justification for piercing ears, even though the Torah says one should not mutilate so the Rebbe says the pleasure overweighs the pain, the minimal pain, the time that you make the piercing. So the, I read the letter that I read was that's why it's permissible, and the word was ach, bigdeila means only by an older. And then shiyes mishkashtes are those that do it with, with the clipons. The correction, the way it's printed in later editions, when they look at the original writing of the Rebbe, it says af, bigdeila, not ach, but af. Af means, adi- in addition to, af, even, big Meaning a younger girl, for sure. Because based on the major difference, if we said ach, it would mean you shouldn't pierce the, the, the ears of younger girls. But af makes much more sense. Why? Because af means little girls have less pain. I assume that's one of the things. And then also the, the second, the number two, fits better. Af, that af. She, yes, this, People do it with the clip-ons. And it's not that customary. For Eid V'Iker, there's, there's always some pain because it's constantly squeezing the air. Then the Rebbe adds, v'yesh Emrim, and there's those that say, that there's a custom, to pierce the air. Similar to Rotsa Deyna when you talk about the Eved Ivri, after he wants to remain with his master, so you pierce the ear. He brings a Saitz Radal, Lepiket Rebbe Lezer, Perek Tes. And then concludes, in everything like this, you should ask Rav Moira So the writer writes, I think there's a mistake in the printed letter about ear piercing that you read. I think that it's supposed to say also a big girl, not just a big girl. I think that Lekut HaSichas was printed wrong and later corrected, maybe in Shari HaLoch or Minek, I always thought that little girl shouldn't appear as there is, like you said, but later it came out clear that I was wrong. And like I just read from that letter. So thank you for that. Okay, time is short, so let me just go with the chassidus. How does chassidus explain the sequence of the Tishrei holidays? So in many ways it's explained, but there's one beautiful way I'd like to share. This is my modem from the Kuteteira and later from the Mitle Rebbe, some Tzadik, and the other rabbi. There's a famous Pesach, Smele, Taches l'ereshi from Shira Shirin. His left arm is beneath my head, and his right arm embraces me, hugs me. So Chsid is based on Zohar, explains that this refers to the two halves of the month of Tishrei. The first half before the new moon, before the full moon, Rosh Yom Kippur called Yom Min that's Smaile. Smail is Yira, Kvura. So the smile is Tachos Lareshi. What do we have in Rosh Hashanah Kippur? The focus there is yira, Awe of God. Accountability. It's serious. You're standing in the presence of God. Then comes V'yemina tachak Peni after the 15th of the month. The moon is now full. So now the right arm embraces me. Embrace. It's not just under my head. Which is more of a, a type of um, more respectful state. It embraces me, and Yemine is Chesed. And Chesed is an exuberance of joy. So the dancing of Sukkot is we're dancing because we stood before the king in Hashanah Yom and we were forgiven. It's also serious, but it's serious joy, it revealed joy. There's Vigila Beroda, as I mentioned earlier. The celebration, the Vigila, the joy is Beroda, with trembling. You don't stand in front of the king and start dancing. You come out of the king's palace, that's when you start dancing. So if you think of it, it's a beautiful juxtaposition in life, there are times where we need to be something that's more solemn, more serious, you know, accountable. It's still with joy, internal joy. And we don't tremble, like I said earlier, it's not all about focusing on guilt and punitiveness and fear and negative and punishment and so on. But still, there's a sense of respect and awe. Then comes the point where we go break out in song and dance, sukkahs, every night growing, in that, all the way up to Simchas Teda which is why on the second look is for what? For the forgiveness. So you have here a very beautiful balance in life that we always need to have two components. In every relationship, there has to be a certain component of respect. Respect the boundaries, respect space. And then there's the concept of love and closeness. You need Yira and Ava. You need Yom Neroyim, and you need Yamei Simchas, Ma'asim Chasenu. That's the structure, and it can be applied in so many ways in life where people, some focus only on the first half, some only on the second half. Some people, Rosh Hashanah looks like Simchas For some people, Simchas Teirah looks like Rosh Hashanah. Like it says in Ayim Yem, brought from the Rebbe Rashab, that does us Kanuftan, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, through tears. That which you can accomplish, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, through tears, we accomplish on Sheminesh, says Simchas Teirah, through joy. So why don't you just start with the joy? Because you need both. and Bedima, Berini yaktseru You sow with tears, you reap parina with dance, with song, with celebration. And you need balance. That's a healthy balance in every relationship. Ava and Yira, as we've discussed many times. Okay. Let's do now the essays. This is the winning essays of the top essays, the top six, probably top seventy essays list. We're going every week, we do we go in order of the marks, and they're pretty close to each other. So we we'll do three essays of the 2019 contest. They're all three in Hebrew, I believe. The first one is Living in the modern world without concerns. How is that possible? Is, that, is it possible? Shoshana Gilis, age 22, Tel Aviv, Israel. A student. Okay. So she writes that people carry upon themselves all kinds of burdens, large and small. And they overwhelm us. They burden us. This includes about where they live, Parnosa, finding finding their soulmate, and many small things as well. Especially in the 21st century, we have so much more to be concerned about because of all the technology and all the available resources that are available to us. So the question is, is there a way To deal with these challenges. Chassidus says yes. And goes on to explain how, how the soul of a person expresses itself in three steps. Thought. Speech. And action. And goes on to explain how you can control each one of these three. In this regard. Thought. In the relationship of man and God. How thought actually creates realities. Examples of how to deal with particular. Examples of solutions to particular challenges. Action, one action is better than a thousand groans. The power of a, a Very nicely done essay. I've enjoyed reading it. This essay and all essays, new essays, are posted at at, at, at um, and if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which I encourage you to do, we also send all updates of anything new posted. Next essay is How do we overcome challenges and don't allow depression to control our lives? Hannah Gavish, age 19, Haifa, Israel. Her job is she helps in Ma'on Seminar Kvar a student and a helper, an assistant. Okay. So exactly as the name implies, that's what the as the title implies. That's what this essay is about: the power of joy, bringing positive energy, and that's ultimately the way not to allow the negative to emerge, to see the good that's concealed. How Rabbi Akiva saw everything for the good. How nothing evil or negative comes from above, and Nochum Ish Gamzu, Gamzu even the negative is also for the good. And methods and methodologies and steps to take to infuse joy into our lives. Thinking joyfully, when a person smiles, God smiles back on them. What to do when one feels depressed. Positive actions, how they affect our moods. And then there's expression between, then there's, the, I'm sorry, the conclusion talks about a comparison between the Hasidic approach, approach of Hasidus, the the joy of Siddhs and the joy of comedy and humor in uh medicine. Interesting comparison. That's a very interesting section. And with that, that's essay. Second essay. The third essay is Beduya, Kfula. Okay. The person feels down. They um are they create a second personality. It's like a split personality in us. The positive one and the one that sees things in a very negative light. It begins by saying that people see in their daily lives all kinds of challenges, which of course stunt and, and block our way, impede our way to growth. And this essay addresses how to deal with that. how to discover your true identity as opposed to the superimposed one of negative thinking. And compares it to uh, the Freudian thinking of the ego, the superego and the id. Let me see. Yeah. And weighing the positive and the negative and ultimately allowing that deeper soul to, to emerge and dominate and control in our lives. It's a rather long essay. Another well done job. Thank you for that. I forgot to mention who it's from. Yesuf Yitzchak Shleim of Pevzner. Age 21. Beitari Lit Israel. A student in Temchit Mimim Tferia. Okay my friends. So we have covered episode 279. Come to a conclusion. Everyone should have a Gemach Simateva Yem Kippur. That's illuminating. A Yem Kippur that teaches us how we can connect our essence to God's essence. And then followed by that the sanctity of Yom Kippur, reaching the Yechidah, the fifth and deepest dimension of the soul, then comes the exuberance and the breakout celebration of Sukkos through all those days of Shoshabiyag, followed by tremendous simcha through the sitting in the Sukkah and then the Dalad Minim, the four days between Yom Kippur and Sukkos, which corresponds to the four days of Yud Kei Vovke, the beginning of, we have a clean slate, we want you have a blessed year, a, 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 a renewed year, a sacred year, and a year of joy. And we'll see each other. The next program will be, it's every Sunday, except, of course, the next Sunday and the following Sunday will not be a program because of Yom Tov. Every Sunday, the following one will be episode 280, 8, and 8, 8 p.m. Everyone be blessed. Stay in touch. And, of course, being that it's right before Yom Kippur, let me make a, an appeal to you. We need your support. Programs like this take time, they take money, they take energy. And please help us continue this program and continue to expand it. You can go easily and donate at Hasidah Supplied. We also have now a Yiska Memorial Wall. So if there's someone you want to honor, a loved one, a friend, or anybody, we will also place it on that wall. Every donation, no donation is too small. So please consider helping and supporting us, dedicating a program, and definitely, in some way, a donation to the we'll COVID Yom Kippur, the we'll COVID this holiday season. And God should bless you that when we give to others, especially here giving others chsiddis, applied chsiddis, helping people grow spiritually, connecting to God and what God wants of us, connecting to each other in a healthy way, trying to bring the geula through your Futsiman God will bless you and be lecha shemadzduk, give you charity, even beyond what you deserve, in abundance, and ad da'i. Everyone be well and a good Geben